Policy Matters is produced by Aegon and Transamerica's Global Government and Policy Affairs team. We're based in Washington, D.C., as well as The Hague in the Netherlands. Hello and welcome to Policy Matters, the podcast that examines the intersection of Aegon and Transamerica's business strategy with public policy issues at the state, federal, and international levels. I'm your host, Maurice Perkins, head of our global policy team. In this episode, Sean Cassidy on our team had a conversation with Politico's senior White House correspondent, Anita Kumar. Our team receives its news from a variety of sources, but Politico is considered by many as one of the best in the business for providing timely, accurate, and balanced political updates on a wide variety of topics that impact the economy, our industry, and ultimately, our customers. Politico's reporting is prominent both in the U.S. and in Europe. So let's take a listen, and thanks again. Anita Kumar, welcome to Policy Matters. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule this close to the election. For our listeners who may not be political news junkies like myself, Anita is Politico's White House correspondent covering President Donald Trump and the administration. Prior to joining Politico, Anita spent time with McClatchy's news service, The Washington Post, The Tampa Bay Times, and other respected news outlets. You can find her on Twitter at AnitaKumar01. So Anita, again, welcome. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into political reporting? Well, when I was starting out, you just kind of look for whatever job you could have. So I just started at a small paper in Virginia, which is where I'm from. And uh, I was not doing political reporting, but you mentioned one paper that I did work at in Florida, the Tampa Bay Times. And when I got there, I was uh, started with local government and really just kind of moved up from there and went to Tallahassee to cover the state government, state legislature and the governor. And then just kind of got the bug, I guess. I, I After that, I kind of stayed with it. So I moved to Washington. And then the rest is history, right? In Washington, you got you to gotta do something with politics. That's great. Well, speaking of getting the bug, have you ever been tempted to run for elected office yourself? No, not at all. I am fully engaged in being an observer. Um, and, and I've been doing it for so long. I feel like I have a, a different perspective. I know people sometimes talk to me about how, how I can do it, you know, because they're, they're invested in one side or the other. And I'm just not, I just am so focused on covering what's there and not getting involved in it that I don't think I could do it if I wanted to at this point. So you're covering the Trump administration now. Did you cover the Obama administration? And if so, what are the biggest differences between the two concerning how they interacted with the press? Um, I did cover President Obama. I started covering the White House in 2012. So the general election was going on at that time. It was just the general election and his reelection campaign. And I was I was not a Politico then. I was at McClatchy, which you mentioned. So I was writing for 30 papers across the country. And then um, during the Trump administration, I moved over to Politico. Um, you know, some of the things, no one believes this, but some of the things about covering a White House are very, very similar. Um, they all want their message to be out. It's very closed. You know, if you're a person or a reporter that's been on Capitol Hill, it's just in completely different. Um, there, you know, you can walk around and, and talk to, you can see senators and, and members of, the, of Congress and just walk up and talk to them. It's very close at the White House. There's only certain places you can walk. They, you know, the press office, which is pretty big, they don't want you to talk to other people. They want to do the talking. So it's just a, it's a very different thing. I would say the biggest, there's so many differences on how they deal with the media that it's hard to say, but 
you know, President Trump loves talking to the media in a way that I had not anticipated when I uh, when he first came into office Clinton's campaign. So I hadn't even been covering the Trump uh, campaign. I guess it's just the sheer amount of times that he wants to be in front of the camera, you know, whether that's calling into a radio or TV show on Fox, um, asking reporters to come into the Oval Office uh, while he answers some questions, coming out for briefings. That is something that was just not done during the Obama administration. It was definitely not a rarity when he had a press conference, but you you knew it wasn't going to be every day or every week. So the the difference is just the interactions and and how often that happens. Does it still feel special to be on the White House property, or has it has it lost its luster? Is is security as tight as we'd imagine? It still feels special when I walk in, um, and you walk down the driveway towards you know where the Marine is standing for the for the West Wing. It does feel special. It's it's a beautiful building on the outside anyway, um, and it. it it feels like you can see the tourists on Pennsylvania Avenue, Avenue looking and um, thinking, you know, who's that person that gets to go into the White House? So even after all these years, I do think it feels special. I haven't been going quite as much as I used to because of coronavirus. And it's, you know, it's so it's it's different when I go in now. It feels a little it does feel special, but it also feels a little bit scary because of everything that's going on over there. Have you had the chance to fly with the president on Air Force One as part of the press pool? And if so, what was that like? Um, I have flown. Uh, that's part of the job. So I've been doing that since 2012. Um, I know I remember my first week um, covering the White House. I was I think I was supposed to fly that week. Worried about it because you just uh, it's you know, it's it's a little bit overwhelming. It's um, not going to lie. It's a really, really nice plane. Um you know, particularly when coronavirus wasn't around, you know, there's people are walking around, people aren't necessarily sitting down and wearing masks. You can interact with people and it's a, a very nice plane. They serve good food on nice China. It's it's nice. And it, it that does feel special as well. Um, it's also just so much quicker and easier than obviously flying commercial. Right. Which, you know, takes time and you have to go through security. Uh, all the security is already done beforehand. If you're getting on the plane, it means you've already passed that background check. And that's something that um, we have a team at Politico that travels. So depending on how often the president travels depends on how often our time comes up. But, you know, I, I go pretty regularly. And when you're part of the press pool, are you reporting solely for Politico or do you have an obligation to share your reporting with other news outlets who maybe not be represented on uh, Air Force One on that particular flight. Yeah. So your first obligation is to the other outlets. Um, that is why you're there. You're the eyes and ears um, for the entire press corps or rather the entire print press corps. So on Air Force One, there are about 14 print outlets that take turns uh, taking a seat there. Um, you know, some of the places, you know, Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and New York Times. So we're not all there at once. If I'm traveling and they're not, and I'm that person, then I'm sending real-time reports um, by phone, by my iPhone, um, just on what I'm seeing and hearing. So if the president comes back, you often hear the president comes back and talks to the press, anything he might say or any of his staff, uh, anything I see that that someone else might not be able to see because they're not there. And that's, that's the number one priority. Um, 
generally I also write a story. So it's obviously pretty busy. I'm also trying to write a story at the same time. But, you know, all the people back at Politico know that the first obligation is to to provide that information for everybody else. So the story comes second. How is the president's propensity to use Twitter instead of holding press briefings or in addition to press briefings impacted your reporting? It is tough. Uh, I never would have imagined during the Obama administration that I would the president's Twitter come to my cell phone as text messages. But now I have that notification that you can get messages um, automatically because there are so many tweets. Um, you know, it can just change at a moment's notice. And that's something that's very different between these two presidents. You know, President Obama's White House liked to have sort of a message of each day, a very, they were very uh, disciplined about that message. Now, obviously things happened in the world and sometimes things would change, but they tried very hard not to step on their own message. Um, with this White House, with President Trump, you know, there's a million messages a day and some of them can be because of news, but some of them can be just what he tweets. And so you have to be very vigilant about uh, watching what he says at all times, really, um, because you don't get a hint of what's coming. You know, oftentimes the president's own aides don't know what's coming and they're also learning things by Twitter. So you just have to be uh, vigilant about watching and also ready to change, switch gears, really, and say, well, this is this is what's happening now. Now, Politico has a little bit of a different setup than than some, which is we have sort of breaking news reporters that if the president tweets something, they are on it. That's what they do um, right away. Um, and they'll write something. Whereas I and some of my colleagues on the White House team, we're writing sort of the bigger picture. So it's not like I'm writing something every single time he tweets, but I do have to be able to follow that. Is it difficult to find administration officials willing to talk on or off the record? How does that happen? Do you contact them or do they sometimes contact you? Sometimes they contact, they reach out if they have something they want to say. But I would say by far, it's it's far more common for, for me or other reporters to contact them. It is so incredibly hard for people to get people to speak on the record. I would say, don't think that has anything to do with this president, but I would say every year that I've covered the White House, uh, it has gotten harder and harder. I think in Washington, it's just gotten very it's very commonplace now that you won't quote someone on the record. People just assume you won't, um, which I, you know, I, we don't like, and I wouldn't necessarily want that to be the assumption, but sometimes you, you get emails and, and when someone responds by email, they'll say, well, this is, this is automatically off the record or not, you, you know, on background. So you can't use someone's name and, you know, anyone who's in journalism knows that that agreement has to be made by both people. It's, it's really a frustrating thing. Um, but I think, and I think it's just going to get worse. I think it gets worse every year. How long is the typical White House news-related cycle? Is it shrinking? And then a follow-up question, how many editors, if any, review your stories before they're posted on Politico? Oh, the news cycle is, is so fast now. Um, it could, you know, it's multiple times a day. Sometimes I just marvel at things that I thought would change everything. If you remember 
you know, a few weeks ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I thought that was going to change the entire dynamic. And then, you know, a million things have happened since then, and then the president got coronavirus. So, I mean, it's just, it's so quick and so intense, and that really does come because of this president. He is creating news all the time in a way that his predecessors didn't. Um, you asked the question about how many editors... Um, I think it depends on which what story it is. Um, there are always two editors that read what I write, sometimes a copy editor in addition. And then um, at Politico, we the editors have a meeting every day to talk about and look at and review the tops of stories. Um, so how they look. So I guess it's really more than two, but there's a lot of input from a lot of different editors. Do you get the sense that the president's executive orders are prepared top down or bottom up? And in other words, are the various agencies asking for these executive orders or is the White House preparing them on its own initiative? I think that's mixed. I definitely think that there are some executive orders that might be more traditional. And, and what I mean by that is they are from the agencies. There's something that perhaps career uh, agency officials have seen that need to be changed or um, need to be done because of a certain policy and they're spending the time to research and really figure out what that language should be and they seem to be taking forever because it has to go through that vetting process. But I do think that there are many that are the exact opposite. Uh, the president might just announce something in a, in a staff meeting or meeting with his top aides or announce something on Twitter even. And then the aides have to scramble to come up with that executive order. So I really do think it's uh, it's both. I probably never would have said that during the Obama administration. I would have told you they would probably, uh, you know, staffers really researching things. Now, sometimes the president asks for something, but it's a little bit different than just sort of saying, well, we should do this and we're going to do this next week. How closely does the president work with his cabinet? Are they routinely consulted on issues or do you get the sense that policy decisions are made within the White House and then shared with the agencies? I think it really depends, but I would say that it, it's probably a lot um, in the White House and then shared with the agencies. Really depends on whether the president cares about a certain issue or not. So there are certain things that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people that work for this for the federal government. I'm sure they're making decisions all the time. Um, but I would say that if it's something the president cares about, if it's a policy issue that he campaigned on, uh, it's something that he's heard about, read about, seen on television, um, it might be coming from the White House and he'll call someone up and, and say, this is what we're going to do. So I, I think it's both, but I think this president more than others um, probably dictates some of that. So you were in the room for the presidential debate on Tuesday, September 29th. That must have been quite an experience. What, if any, suggestions would you have for how the next debate and presumably the final debate should proceed so the candidates have more time to talk? It is a great question. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I know that in, immediately after that debate, people said, well, you should have a mute button or, you know, a button to stop the president or Vice President Biden from talking and just cut them off. What people, you know, sometimes don't realize is the Commission on Presidential Debates comes up with these rules. You saw what they said 
for the second debate that it was going to be virtual. And they don't consult the campaigns. They say, this is how we're going to do it. Well, you immediately saw what happened. President Trump said he wasn't going to participate. So, you know, you can, the commission could come up with all sorts of rules, including that button that would uh, interrupt someone. But if the candidates don't agree and they don't, you know, say they're going to abide by that, they just won't show up or they won't do anything. So I just don't think it's as easy as coming up with some rules. Um, I think what people found most frustrating about that first debate is the president and, and vice president's campaigns agreed to those rules. They agreed from the outset. So if they weren't going to abide by them, then, you know, some people would argue maybe they shouldn't participate. Uh, it's a tough one. And I, I I don't know that I thought that President Trump was like this when he was not president in 2016. I thought there were debates between him and Hillary Clinton where you could actually hear those disagreements in policy and just didn't happen happen this time. And I, I don't know what the answer is that to that. That's a very tough question. How do you keep your your own political opinions out of your reporting? You know, I get asked that all the time, um, mostly from people. I mean, it really just seems like everyone you talk to these days has they're on one side or the other, and they can't imagine that I can write something that doesn't favor their side. <laughs> uh, you know, that's friends, um, that's family, that's that's you know, all sorts of people. I don't know how I can do it except to tell you that I've been doing it a really long time. And I just don't even know that I could do it any other way um, because I'm so used to it. I'm so used to having to have both sides and to understand what's going on in both sides that I just tune the rest out. And it's it's gotten harder to do that because the criticism uh, has gotten very intense in these last few years, I would say since 20. 16, um, you know, when social media really became a, a thing, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and all the emails that you get in the criticisms. Um, I appear on TV, too. And so a lot of it is people seeing you on television and criticizing. You know, I don't really know, except for that I've been doing it like this. And I feel like providing people with balanced news is so incredibly important. I kind of just tune out the rest. Speaking of social media, social media continues to alter how news is disseminated, especially fake news. How has that impacted journalism and and how do you think it will continue to affect it in the future? I use social media and I know most people do, but I but the hardest thing about it is that people only seem to be looking at what they agree with. So the the problem with Facebook is that Sometimes people can just only read things they agree with and and they don't get to see the other side or don't get to hear those other arguments. Um, so it's tough because people are in a vacuum and they're not really hearing everything there is to hear about something. And don't really know how to get around that. I think that's really one of the downfall, you know, the downsides of having, um, you know, local news, local media outlets, particularly newspapers. Um, you know, fold, uh, close, get, you know, furlough or or lay off employees. It's been really tough. There's not as much of that local news. People aren't reading that as much. And so they're they're going to Twitter and Facebook. I, you know, I would just hope that people can 
expand what they're reading and make sure to, to read all those sides. It also is hard because, um, you know, they at this point, people read if they do see other things, uh, they assume that it's false. Everything now that someone doesn't agree with or a lot of people don't agree with is assumed to be false. And that has made journalism like Politico and, and you know, other places that are really even providing that news. It's really hard. People automatically disagree and, and don't believe you. Anita, one of the stories you're covering is the national census that's currently underway and the possibility that it could be concluded sooner than originally planned. Can you explain the potential significance of ending the census early? What's what's at stake? Well, it's been very hard this year. I'm sure it's very hard every census year, but it's been very hard this census year for um, those census workers to get out during the pandemic and reach all the people they need to reach. They actually want more time, not less time, to reach all those people. And by allowing the administration to stop early, it really works against getting those people that are hard to reach. So those people might be um, people that are, um, you know, lower income or, um, you know, in disadvantaged communities, communities of color. And if you don't get that accurate count, uh, you know, I think people just don't realize this, how important the census is. You hear about the census, but you don't realize it helps dictate how many members of Congress there are from your state. It helps uh, with so much federal money uh, and how it's dispersed. It, it could really change things for a community or for a state. And it doesn't reflect what America is all about if they can't get every single person and so I think it's really a problem. I, I've talked to people that work for the census that really feel career people that feel they need more time to get that accurate picture. And at this point, it doesn't look like they're going to have that. Another story that you're covering is the administration's role in negotiating another COVID related legislative package. Is it likely that will happen before the election or if not within the lame duck session yet this year? I'm laughing because every minute this changes. Um, this probably changes several times a day. So I can only tell you at this point in time what the, what the situation is. It does sound like the Democrats in the House and the president. I mean, it really just let me back up there. It sounds like everybody wants a deal, but they are really not much closer to coming up with one. The problem really isn't about what they're funding. I mean, that, that is one of the problems. But to me, the biggest problem is they can't agree even in a ballpark what how much money they should spend. There's just a fundal, fundamental philosophical disagreement between Democrats and Republicans on this. Republicans really, really want to keep this small, skinny, as they say, and the Democrats don't. And And while they're still negotiating and they've gotten closer, they're still really far apart on that. Um, most recently, it really did look like President Trump and, and the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin were giving this a push. They really want this to happen. They want to happen, want it to happen before the election. Then you have the Senate Republicans saying, no, we still don't we still don't agree on this amount. It's just too big. So while President Trump is saying, let's make it a bigger deal, uh, Senator McConnell in, in the Senate is saying, no, it's too big. So it just seems very, very unlikely to happen. Not sure about the lame duck. I think right now the political pressure is to get something done before the election because 
nobody wants to be blamed uh, by Americans and by voters for not having um, done something. So I think it's more likely to happen now, but but even now it's not looking good. Anita, thank you so much for your time and insights. I've really enjoyed our conversation and know my colleagues will as well. Good luck on reporting the final few weeks before the election. Great, thanks for having me. Thank you.